How do you do? Mr. Brian Peters feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast, gravely amusing, without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold an episode from the mind of Brian Peters, a fan of pop culture who sought to create a podcast after his own image, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest podcasts ever listened to. It deals with two great fandoms of pop culture, humor, and horror. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such strain, now's your chance to... Well, we warned you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part three of the first episode of Gravely Amusing on the History of Frankenstein. We explored the history of Mary Shelley, the novel Frankenstein, and now we're going to explore the movies Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. So our story begins with, just like Frankenstein, it starts with a new creation in the world. On April 30th, 1912, when the greatest film studios ever was created. And, and I'm probably going to butcher these names, but it was created by Carl Emil, Mark Dittenfoss, Charles Bauman, Adam Kesselrun and 12 Parsecs, Matt Powers, William Slippy, Slappy, Samsonite. Oh, let me look. Um, oh, Swanson, Swanson. That's it. I, I was way off. Uh, David Horsley, Robert Cochran, Joel's Brulator, and A Partridge in a Pear Tree. It is the oldest film studio in the United States and the fifth oldest in the entire world. Uh, it is the oldest of the big five, which are Universal, Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and Sony. It is currently owned by NBC, which is then owned by Comcast. The president of Universal in the very beginning was Carl Lemieux. Uh, he wouldn't get into many. I won't. I won't get into many details of how uh, everything came together. But basically, the Edison Group had a monopoly on films, so Carl and his gang started buying studios, uh, merging them together, and he made choices that Edison didn't do. One thing that he didn't, that Edison didn't do, that Carl did, and was the first to do it was he gave top billing and screen credits to the performers in the movie. Uh, he understood that they were the ones that made things possible. By naming movie stars and using them in actual marketing, uh, it actually created stars. It made actors actually want to work for Carl. So thank you, Carl. I really wish that uh, studios today would use your way of thinking and appreciating actors so that we could end this strike. In 1915, Carl opened Universal City Studios, the world's largest motion picture production facility in Hollywood. And he did something that other studios didn't do. He opened it to tourists. 
and it would remain the largest studio for almost a decade. Now, they first did what every other studio did. Um, he didn't make all choices uh, that people didn't do. He made inexpensive melodramas, westerns, and serials. Carl was also the kind of guy who didn't believe in debt. So he financed all the films himself, something his competitors did not do. This would nearly bankrupt the studio so many times. But in 1915, an actor came along that would change the game. A true star. Lon Chaney. Not to be confused with his son, Lon Chaney Jr., who would play the Wolfman. Uh, Lon Chaney was a man of a thousand faces. Now, I could be wrong with this, but um, I, I do know a lot about Batman and Batman history, but I, this, this I could be wrong. I do believe that Lon Chaney is the inspiration for the Batman villain uh, Clayface, or at least the original version, uh, Basil Carlo. But I, um, I'll have to look into my notes more for that. But anyway, Lon Chaney would star in main dramas for just a few years uh, before he left his contract um, to make more money. In those years, though, he was with the studio. He made two of the most iconic and amazing silent film performances ever. So what a silent film is, is basically before the 30s, uh, movies had no sound. They would just be motion pictures, uh, pictures in motion, yeah. And in between those pictures would be like a black screen with text of what what the characters would say. So you knew, knew what it was saying. Uh, this was good for deaf people like me because, you know, <laughs> I can't hear crap. Um, so movies had subtitles and then... Uh, when they got sound, they just forgot about these subtitles, and us deaf people have had to suffer. <laughs> but Lon Chaney uh, played Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he played the Phantom in The Phantom of the Opera, which is arguably the most iconic version of the Phantom, uh, especially with that makeup he wore. Now, I, uh, I'm going to get crap for this, but I've never seen those two movies. Uh, I really suck. I know I'm going to watch them very soon. Um, but those two characters, the hunchback and the phantom, some consider those uh, actually universal monsters, but universal is kind of weird about this. In some marketing, the phantom is not included in the marketing. Uh, the hunchback is never is. But in some box sets of Universal Monsters, they include like a 1935 or maybe it's 45 version of the Phantom of the Opera that's like in Technicolor. Um, it's not Lon Chaney. So, you know, what, whatever you want to believe. Um, I would say that Universal Monsters started with this right here because it's, it's a monster. But most would say that Universal Monsters started with Dracula. Um, so we're, we're just going to go that Dracula started it because in marketing, it's always Dracula. So, you know, whatever. So I'm, I'm sorry for rambling. <laughs> in, in 1928, though, Carl Sr. decided to retire and he handed the keys of the kingdom to his 21-year-old son, Carl Jr., 
who was working at a fast food restaurant called Hardy's at the time. Uh, Carl Jr. came out of the gate really hot. He bought and built theaters. He converted the studios to produce sound, finally. Uh, he had some bombs in movies, but he also had some great success, especially with winning Best Picture for All Quiet in the Western Front in 1930. But... In 1930, the, uni the Universal Studios was still suffering loss. It was $2.2 million in debt. So Carl uh, Jr. and Carl Sr. spent way too much money. And eventually, that's how the Millennials would lose control of the company. But he's still here right now. I believe that Carl Jr., though, even though he lost control, he was able to keep them afloat, especially in the Great Depression, because of one special decision. He knew that Universal Studios needed a niche. They needed something that no one else was doing. So he created what, what some would say, and what I would say, is a first cinematic universe. He created the Universal Monsters. Within 48 hours of Dracula opening the first Universal Monsters movie for, for this sake, it made $700,000. I'm not sure if that's 1931 money or that's adjusted for inflation, but $700,000. It made a lot of money. This is the Great Depression, for God's sakes. Carl Jr. had lightning and a bottle, and a new era was coming, the era of monsters. On November 21st, 1931, just nine months after Dracula, it was time to premiere another monster. This time, it would be Frankenstein. Dracula was taken from a stage play and novel, so it was logical to do this again with another iconic monster. Carl Jr. purchased the film rights to stage adaptations from John Balderson and the British rights from Peggy Webling, and he got to work. Immediately following his success in Dracula, Lugosi had hoped to play Dr. Frankenstein in Universal's concept. However, the actor was expected by Carl Jr. to play the monster and kind of be the new Lon Chaney. The initial director for Frankenstein was Robert Flory, who had won the monster as a simple killing machine without a touch of human quality. This reportedly caused Lugosi to, de to deny the role. He was quoted as saying, I was a star in my country. I would not be a scarecrow over here. Flory later wrote that the Hungarian actor didn't show himself very enthusiastic for the role and didn't want to play it. However, the decision may have not been Lugosi's in any case, since recent evidence suggests that he was kicked off the project, along with director Robert Foley, when the newly arrived James Whale asked for the property and later cast Karloff, a not as famous actor, but Karloff had quite a look. Lugosi not playing the monster is considered one of the worst decisions in Lugosi's career. Lugosi would later play the monster in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which is the first Universal Monster crossover. But by then, his career was in such a hard decline, he, he just didn't steal the show. It, it, it's not that good. 
With Bella Lugosi out, the film was marketed with the mystery of who would play the monster. Some would say that whoever would have this role would be ruined, so to limit liability, they made it a mystery. This film went against the censor board of that day. That's why some versions of the movie actually have the Maria scene cut. So this is why you see a question mark on the opening credits of the film on who plays the monster, so to, to reduce liability. The man who would play that monster was the iconic Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff has the monster. I don't know how you can forget the image of that. Flathead, heavily ridged forehead, dull eyes, and two electrodes protruding from his neck. The very image is synonymous with horror. Boris Karloff, the actor with the sweet-ass name and sometimes scary look, was actually a gentle poetry-reading soul who had a passion for gardening. His real name was William Henry Pratt, and he was born in Dulwich, England in 1887, a short distance from where Jack the Ripper murdered women just a few months later. In his youth, he seemed headed for a diplomatic career, but in 1909, he moved to North America and he began working as a farmhand. He would soon develop an interest in acting. He spent his first dozen years in Hollywood playing undistinguished roles in feature films and serials. Uh, sometimes he couldn't even find work. He got side jobs, uh, including being a truck driver. I think you can see at some Love's Truck Stops, Boris was here. But his big break came in the role of the monster in Universal's Frankenstein, a 1931 hit that made him the top star in Hollywood's newly minted horror genre. Boris specialized in horror for the rest of his life, sometimes turning to the stage and TV for other types of assignments. In the early 60s, he hosted more than 60 episodes of the scary anthology series Thriller with Universal. Shortly thereafter, he reunited with Universal co-stars uh, Basil Rathbone and Vincent Price in a lot of horror spoof movies, uh, which are actually pretty darn great. One last fact about Boris. He is the voice of the narrator and the Grinch in the classic cartoon. How about that? In my mind, Boris is a blueprint for how casting should be done. After casting Boris Karloff uh, as a monster, Frankenstein director James Whale, a talented artist himself, sketched some initial designs that exaggerated Karloff's facial features. I actually shared these sketches uh, on a gravely amusing Twitter if you, if you like to see them. Whale showed these sketches to makeup artist Jack Pierce, who was a makeup god and he used them for brainstorming the 1931 concept art, uh, or, or for the makeup from the concept art. Now, other artists uh, would contribute different sketches. Uh, Whale and Pierce agreed that they didn't want the design to overshadow Karloff's natural features, and they needed the monster to remain uh, retain uh, a human appearance. Uh, they wanted the audience to pity the monster, kind of like we did when it went with the book. To accomplish this, Pierce and Karloff got together after work in the makeup department, and they developed the makeup together uh, over three weeks. 
When the duo finally emerged from their lab, they had the recipe for the ultimate makeup for a movie monster. If you got a pen and paper, kids, you're going to want to write this down. Ingredients for one movie monster. The eyebrow ridge and square head were built up by applying spirit gum. It's a makeup adhesive. Uh, they also were sticking a layer of cotton, uh, then painting on a coat of collagen. And uh, collagen is like, um, it's like a liquid, liquid plastic. It uh, is very strong smelling. It has like uh, ether and alcohol in it. So uh, they were probably getting high all day. <laughs> but if you ain't getting high or drunk in movie making, are, are you really doing it right? <laughs> uh, this process would be repeated until the eyebrow ridge and the flat head uh, reach the final shape. Somewhere on the top of the head, a roll of cotton uh, held the square shape of the head. Uh, Jack Pierce stated the wig was made with a cotton roll on the top to get the flatness and the circle that protrudes uh, out from the head. Uh, more cotton was soaked in collagen along with some cheesecloth, uh, which is a th it's a, like uh, cheesecloth is like a thin gauze-like fabric, and this was used to create the large scar on the side of the forehead. Pierce also adds scars to Carlos' arms and wrists. And then he used black shoe polish to color the fingers and hands and, and fingernails. Uh, in the face, Boris took out his dental bridge to give the cheeks a sunken look. That man was dedicated. <laughs> he, he, he actually might have been too dedicated. Uh, sometimes people wonder what the bolts were on the neck. And uh, those are electrodes, as I, as I said earlier. So electrodes were like an inlet for electricity to reach the monster's brain. Uh, these were applied every morning using very tough spear gum. Removing them was a painful process that actually left permanent scars on Karloff's neck for the rest of his life. Now, uh, Pierce might have never admitted, uh, but the electrodes in the neck are actually said to be the idea of uh, Carly Gross, which was a hung Hungarian poster artist uh, for Universal. He added the electrodes to the monster in an early drawing, which is said to be the robotic-looking monster in that, uh, in that concept art that I shared. Now, finally, uh, finally, we were at, we were when we were in the last stages. Uh, uh, Boris says this: when they were in the last stages, my eyes seemed to, too normal and alive and natural for a thing that only just been put together and born, so to speak. Uh, so Pierce agreed with Karloff and created the drooping eyelids. Uh, now, some say he used mortician's wax to create these eyelids. Uh, others claim it was like a special putty uh, in order to get it right. Uh, e e e either way, it worked. Finally, Pierce covered everything in a grayish-green grease paint that made the monster look like death in black and white. The true color of the grease paint can be seen in some color test footage uh, shot for Son of Frankenstein uh, in that Karloff uh, jokingly strangles Jack Pierce. I think you can probably find on YouTube or some uh, uh, DVD extras. Now, how long did it take to do this makeup, you might ask? Uh, Jack Pierce say, says it, it took three hours. Karloff says 
I spent three and a half hours in the makeup chair getting ready for the day's work. The makeup itself was quite painful, particularly the putty on my eyes. There were days when I thought I would never be able to hold out to the end of the day. So, so this makeup job basically took three hours. Every morning at 3.30 a.m., Karloff would arrive in the makeup chair and the process would begin. Now, since this was perform, uh, before foam latex, which would later be used in uh, movie makeup process, uh, no individual makeup pieces were produced. So what that means is that every morning, Jack Pierce recreated the entire monster makeup every single time. Removing the makeup was just as time-consuming. They had a tape. Uh, oh, it took to take it off. It took between one and two hours. So we're talking putting the makeup on and taking it off was a total of like five to six hours. For gosh sakes, uh, this involved breaking it down with various oils and acids. Then they seriously had to rip the makeup off of Karloff's face. The whole process was so exhausting and painful. Uh, Karloff sometimes slept with the makeup on uh, in order to reduce the workload for each morning and to give his face a rest. He somehow, when he slept, put his head between two books so his head wouldn't roll around during the night and damage the makeup. Um, how the hell someone could sleep like that comfortably, no freaking clue. But Karloff would do it. And Pierce would then touch up anything in the morning. Now, the original script described the monster's head being like the lid of a box or like the lid, or well, yeah, like the lid of a box. What Pierce said about his design was, I did not depend on imagination. In 1931, before I did a bit of designing, I spent three months of research in anatomy, surgery, medicine, criminal history, criminology, ancient and modern burial customer customs and electrodynamics. My atomical studies taught me that there are six ways that a surgeon can cut the skull in order to take out or put in a brain. I figured that Frankenstein, who was a scientist, but had no practice due being a surgeon, would take the simplest surgical way and he would put the top, he would cut the top of the skull off straight across like a pot lid he would hinge it, pop the brain in, and clamp it on tight. And that's the reason I decided to make the monster's head square and flat like a shoebox and dig that big scar across his forehead with the metal clamps holding it together. What a friggin' genius, Jack. Uh, compare this to what Karloff later said when he discussed the makeup. Uh, we had to surmise the brain after, after that we had to sur sur surmise that brain after brain had been tried in that poor skull. It was inserted and taken out again. That is why we built up the forehead to convey the impression of demonical surgery. Then we found the eyes were too bright. Uh, seemed, they seemed too understanding. We needed dumb be be bewilderment, uh, and that was essential. So I waxed my eyes to make them heavy half-seen. Just, you know, wow. Um, so let's talk about the monster's cute little outfit. During this research period for the makeup, uh, Pierce read that the bodies of criminals buried alive in ancient Egypt were actually found with elongated extremities. He decided to add the same concept to the monster's design. 
So here's what he said about that. For Boris, the, the coat was cut down so the length of his arms and fingers would look long. Everything was in black to give him the height also. I padded him to look eight feet tall. In addition to the little black dress with some padding, Karloff wore a pair of modified asphalt spreader boots with lifts to give him height. Each boot weighed 13 pounds. While steel rods were placed down the, each of Karloff's pant legs, this gave the monster his unique walk. How about that? A steel rod was also hidden in the back of the costume to keep Karloff's frame stiff and straight. Pierce said he carried a five-pound steel spine to represent the rod which conveys the current up the monster's brain. The entire costume weighed 48 pounds. Now, according to his daughter, Boris lost 25 pounds making this movie. He makes my bud James Cole look like a chump. James, do you even lift, bro? I'd like to see you wear 13-pound boots and have a metal rod up your ass. <laughs> no, no, I won't. Never mind. <laughs> so there we have the monster. Let's talk about the mad scientists, starting with director James Whale. It was, it was during World War I that Englishman James Whale got a start in show business, but not in the best casting ways. He was an actor in plays and also a prisoner of war in a German camp. So he acted in plays as a prisoner. He performed in more traditional plays upon his return to England after the war, and then he began directing for theater. Whale would direct the war drama Journey's End, starring Colin Clive, and it became such a success that ultimately both Whale and Clive came to Hollywood to make a movie version of it. Whale directed uh, several moneymakers, and because of that, Universal gave, his, gave him uh, his choice of assignments. He selected Frankenstein, and Universal fired the already chosen director and maybe Bela Lugosi with him. So that's, that's, that's what really happened. Um, oh, I think it's a mixture of the two. I think it's that Whale became the director, and then Lugosi was like, I'm not, uh, you know, if I'm not going to play Henry Frankenstein, I'm not going to play anything. Whale would choose his boy, Colin Clive, as a mad scientist. Um, I don't understand why they changed the name to Victor and, like, swap roles with Victor and Henry, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Whale also brought back Dwight Fry as another um, – he also brought back Dwight Fry, uh, who was a hunchback assistant. Um, I'm so sorry. He brought – back to White Fry as a hunchback assistant, um, uh, Fritz. He was not named Igor. Everybody thinks he's named Igor from since the beginning of time. Uh, we know that in the book there was no Igor. He was actually named Fritz. Uh, Dwight Fry played that crazy assistant, uh, Renfield, in Dracula. So now he's in the, Frank the Frankenstein franchise. I, I think he played Renfield a little bit better than Fritz. Um, but, you know, what are you going to do? The fourth amazing actor that they brought into this um, that I want to mention is Edward Van Sloan. Edward Van Sloan played Van Helsing in Dracula. 
Uh, in this film, he plays the teacher of Henry Frankenstein, Dr. Wallman, which we know from the book that uh, Victor really loved him, really loved Wallman, Bruce really uh, admired him. And we were given lightning in, a bowling, lightning in a bottle here. All these elements came together to give us one of the most amazing movies in cinematic history. The film opens with Edward Van Sloan stepping out of the curtain to warn the audience about what they're about to see. I actually had this parodied uh, in the opening of the episode. I thought it would be a nice touch, and uh, I, I think it was pretty sweet. After this, we see a funeral taking place, and we're introduced to Dr. Henry Frankenstein, played by Colin Clive, as devoted assistant Igor. I mean, Fritz. His name is Fritz. And he's played by Doy Fry. Fritz is a hunchback. Henry wishes to piece together a human body, the parts of which have been secretly collected from various sources. One of these sources will be this freshly covered grave here. The men wait till the grave digger buries the body, lights a pipe, and he leaves. Henry and Fritz get right to work to dig up the body. Uh, they must have waited for hours and hours on end. Um, and then they spend another hour digging it back up. Uh, it, seems, it seems pretty freaking exhausting. Uh, I don't understand why they need this body. Just, you know, use the morgue. But, you know, whatever. So Henry plans to take these body parts and create life using the Tesla coil, Tesla coil he asks. And, and yeah, it was, it was an actual Tesla coil from Nikolai Tesla. Uh, it was pretty cool. So Henry tasks Fritz to steal the brain of a genius for the creation. But when Fritz breaks into school and seals it, he gets spooked and he drops the correct brain and he steals a criminal brain instead. Uh, Elizabeth, who's uh, played by May Clark, is Henry's fiance, and she worried about him. She can't understand why he secludes himself in an abandoned watchtower which she's made into a laboratory, and he refuses to see anyone, even her. She and her friend Victor, who should be named Henry, uh, whatever, uh, played by John Bowles, they go to Dr. Wallman, who's played by Edward Van Sloan, uh, who's Henry's old medical professor, and they ask Dr. Wallman's help in saving Henry from his obsession. Uh, Elizabeth, intent on rescuing her future husband, arrives at the watchtower just as a madman is making his final tests. They they all come inside and they watch Dr. Frankenstein and Fritz as they raise the dead creature on an operating table high into the storm-filled sky. When the body comes back down, the hand of Frankenstein's monster begins to move. It is at this moment, Henry and Victor, I'm sorry, and it's this moment that Henry shouts, one of the most iconic lines in cinema history. Look, it's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Henry, in the name of God. Oh, in the name of God, 
Now I know what it feels like to be God. Awesome line. Frankenstein's monster, despite his terrifying appearance, uh, seems to be innocent, actually. It is like a childlike creation. Henry treats it with kindness, and he welcomes it into his laboratory, and he asks it to sit down, which it does. He opens up the roof, causing the monster to reach out towards the sunlight and experience just joy for a bit. But then the hunchback Fritz enters with a flaming torch, which frightens the monster. The fright is mistaken by Henry and Dr. Wallman for an attempted attack. Henry's kindness is soon gone, and like gone like a freight train. He chains the monster in his dungeon, where Fritz continues to antagonize it with a torch. The creature is eventually tired of that shit. Hearing Fritz scream in the dungeon, Henry Wallman run down, find that the creature has forcibly hanged Fritz. The monster lunges at the two, but they lock the monster inside. They decide the monster must be destroyed. Wallman prepares an injection of a powerful drug, and the two try to release the monster and inject it in the jugular as it attacks. When the door is unlocked, the monster lunges at Frankenstein as Wallman injects the drug into the monster's back. The monster falls to the floor unconscious. Henry collapses from exhaustion, and Elizabeth and Henry's father take him home. Henry is very worried about the monster, but Wallman tells him that he's going to destroy it. Don't worry. While Henry's at home, recovering and preparing for the wedding, Wallman decides to dissect the monster and kind of figure out how it works. The monster wakes up and strangles him to death because, you know, that's, that's what the monster does. The monster escapes from the tower and wanders through the wilderness. Uh, this next scene would actually be censored in some versions. So while he's running away, the monster encounters a farmer's young daughter, Maria. She's just a little child, and she asks him to play a game with her in which they toss flowers into a lake and pretend they're boats. The monster enjoys the game, but when the monster runs out of flowers, he throws Maria into the lake, thinking that Maria will float like one of the flowers in the game. She quickly drowns beneath the surface, and the monster is terrified. He runs away. Henry is happy with Elizabeth as the day, wedding day comes. Uh, they're to marry as soon as Waldman comes back with confirmation that the monster is, is dead, that the monster is gone. Victor, um, the friend, uh, I get them confused, I'm sorry, uh, rushes in saying that Waldman has been found dead. Henry su suspects the monster uh, as they talk. The monster actually enters Elizabeth's room, which causes her to scream. When the searchers arrive, they find Elizabeth unconscious. The townspeople are celebrating the wedding during all this, but as soon as that happens, Maria's father arrives, carrying the drowned daughter body. He walks all the way to the police and states that she was murdered. This ends the celebration pretty darn quick. The villagers then form a lynch mob to capture the monster. Now, as a movie guy, um, you know, I, I, I dissect movies 
Uh, I look for inconsistencies. You know, I look for things that don't make sense. So I feel like we're missing many scenes here because the father didn't see the monster. Maria's dead. She ain't talking. So how is there any knowledge that this monster existed where we carry this child's body in and we automatically start looking for this monster? We know exactly what he looks like. Uh, we know he kills people. Like, how the heck do they know that? Because all of a sudden, as well, Henry is with the mob. Now, did he tell him he created the monster? I don't freaking think so. Are monsters common in the area? I don't know. Hashtag plot hole. <laughs> Anywho, during the search, uh, Henry is actually attacked by the monster again. The monster knocks Henry out and carries him to an old windmill. The villagers hear the creature carrying Henry and find it climbing up to the top of the windmill, dragging Henry with it. When the monster sees the people, he actually drops uh, Dr. Frankenstein to the ground, and his fall is actually broken by the wooden blades of the windmill, which actually saved his life from the fall. Some of the villagers take Henry home, while the rest of the mob set the windmill on fire, because, you know, that looks cool. The monster is then trapped inside with nowhere to go and left for dead. At Castle Frankenstein, Henry's father celebrates the wedding of his son, and he gets hammered. The reviews of this film stated that this movie made Dracula tame in comparison, and I bet that quote really stung Lugosi. The movie is considered one of the greatest films of all time, and for that, uh, for those that care, it sits at 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. It really should be 100, but, you know, whatever. The film was a success and earned a profit of 708871 And, of course, it needed a sequel. And I just told you what happens in the book. I mean, you know, dang, that movie was barely anything close to the book. The sequel, Brian Frankenstein, was released in 1935. The gang is all back with this one, with Boris, Clive, and director Whale. Some say this one is better than the original. Uh, I don't think so. In some ways, like it is better because it shows the monster learning, but the, this new crazy old maid character named Minnie and little tiny people in jars, they, they throw off the whole tone of the movie for me. Like, do you want to be a comedy? Do you want to be a horror movie? Um, like, what uh, what are you trying to do? I don't know. This movie uh, does start out very odd, in my opinion, uh, with actors playing Mary Shelley, her husband, and Lord Byron on one of the nights of the Scary Story Challenge. Um, actually, I don't even know if it is one of those nights because Byron talks about the book, like, getting published. Uh it's, it's, it's just off for me. Uh, it basically exists to tell the story of the first movie and set up that there's more to the story than what was in the first movie. It, I don't know, it's just odd. It only makes sense to me if the first movie had this scene in here or that the whole narrative of the movie was Mary telling the story from the get-go. 
Um, it just it feels very odd. But anyway, the movie shifts to the end of the 1931 Frankenstein film. Villagers are gathered around the burning windmill to share the death of the monster. Hans, the father of Maria, who drowned in the previous film, wants to see that the monster is dead. So he's on top of the windmill and he's looking around and he falls into a flood pit uh, underneath the mill. The monster, having survived the fire because it's a freaking monster, it's going to survive anything, uh, strangles him because, you know, you got to, you know, you do, you, you do what you know. The monster knows strangulation. <laughs> uh, the monster reaches up from the pit and uh, sees Hans's hot smoking wife. And he kills her, so the whole family could be together. How nice. He then uh, he next encounters Frankenstein's servant, Minnie, who, in my opinion, is one of the most annoying characters in horror movie history, if not cinema history. All she does is scream and talk really weird, and it's, uh, it's stupid. Uh, Henry Frankenstein is returned to his fiancee, Elizabeth, during this time. And uh, Elizabeth's like, you know, hey, baby, you know, I can nurse you back to health. Uh, Minnie appears out of nowhere and sounds the alarm about the monster, but she's so gosh darn annoying that no one cares. Henry is nursed back to health by Elizabeth as he's suddenly visited by his former mentor, um, his former mentor, Dr. Syphilis Clitoris, or Septimus Pretorius, uh, uh, however the heck it's said. Uh, Clitoris shows Henry that he has a, created artificial life, and he wants Henry to create a mate for the monster. Pretorius will grow an artificial brain while Henry gathers parts for the mate. Henry is intrigued by this, but he tells him no. Uh, Clitoris sets off to find a way to persuade Henry. Meanwhile, the monster's on the loose, and this time, he actually saves a young kid from drowning. But her screams upon seeing him alert two hunters, who shoot and injure the monster. The hunters then raise a mob that sets out to capture the monster. The monster is hauled into a dungeon, and he is chained. Left alone, he breaks the chains, overpowers the guards, and he escapes into the woods. That night, he hears the sound of a violin. The monster encounters an old blind man, or a blind hermit, who thanks God for sending him a friend. He teaches the monster words like friend and good, and he shares his meals with him. He teaches him that fire can be good, and the real joys in life are drinking and smoking. Two hunters eventually stumble upon the cottage and recognize the monster. They attack the monster, thinking that they're saving the blind man. The monster fights back and unfortunately sets the cottage ablaze. Taking refuge from another angry mob in a crypt, the monster, um, the monster spies Pretorius and his cronies Ludwig and Carl, who is, interesting enough, played by Dwight Fry who is back again as another character because Universal Monsters obviously doesn't care about continuity. How can you bring a character back? The same actor is a different person. Like, uh, what the hell, guys? I guess it's because, uh, I guess it's because, you know, Dwight Fry is just so good. 
but whatever. Uh, the monster approaches Pretorius, uh, eats some of his food, has a smoke, gets high, and learns that Pretorius plans to create a mate for him. Henry and Elizabeth, now married, are visited by Clitoris. When Henry refuses again to assist with Pretorius's plans, Pretorius calls in the monster who demands Henry's help. Henry again refuses, and Pretorius orders the monster to go away, but he actually secretly signals him to kidnap Elizabeth. Pretorius guarantees her safe return upon Henry's participation. Henry returns to his tower laboratory, where even though he said no, he grows very excited over the work. After hearing Elizabeth's voice, Henry completes the bride's body. Ironically, a storm rages as final steps are taken to bring the bride to life, because that's how the movie happens. It, you know, you have to have a storm. Her bandaged wrapped body is raised through the roof, and she's brought to life just like the monster was. Henry and Pretorius lower her and remove her bandages to help her stand. Uh, the bride of Frankenstein is apparently born with no consent and no actual wedding ceremony. I did notice something, though, when I was an adult, um, that the bride here is played by the same woman who plays Mary Shelley in the beginning. Uh, I forget her name. But I guess this was supposed to be like a poetic or creative thing that, you know, Mary Shelley is the, the bride of Frankenstein. And, um, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it doesn't work for me. The monster then comes down the steps after killing Carl on the rooftop because you have to kill Dwight Fry. It's just how it works. That's what he exists for. <laughs> um, and the monster sees his mate. He immediately gets an erection, and he reaches out and asks her, friend? Sexual partner? <laughs> the bride screams and rejects him. He is totally cock-blocked, and the monster observes, she hates me like others. Elizabeth appears out of nowhere and goes to Henry's side. The monster rampages through the laboratory. When Clitoris warns that the monster is about to destroy them all, the monster stops and tells Henry and Elizabeth, Go! You live! Go! To Pretorius and the bride, he says, You stay! We belong dead! Henry and Elizabeth flee. The monster looks at the bride, who gives him one last hiss. Shedding a tear, he pulls a lever to trigger the laboratory and the tower of destruction. So, as you can hear, the movies take the idea of creating a monster. That monster being shunned and alone. Uh, the one for love. But they don't take much else. Uh, the book shows Victor might have been a real monster. While the movie makes Henry this good dude who just wanted to make something cool. While the movies and imagery are awesome, I feel the book was better as, as it usually is in most cases. The true meaning of Frankenstein to me is everyone deserves happiness. Everyone deserves love. Beauty is everywhere. If you feel like a monster, if you feel alone, know that you are not. Somewhere there is another one, and they're thinking that they're a monster too. And like you, they're waiting to be loved. Be kind to others, and most of all, be kind to yourself.
Good night, everyone. I hope you'll join me next time. I might not be the best podcaster, but at least you were gravely amused.